As a reminder, we stand out of reverence and awe for God. Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading is Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. To those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. Is it on? Am I good? Can you hear me? Yeah. Let me set my timer here so that I don't do what I like to do, which is talk a lot. My name is Marcus, and I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption. If you're, if you're new, uh, uh, God brought you. Welcome. In James chapter 3, uh, the Lord instructs James to write some really important words to pastors and preachers and anyone who occupies this space in any, in any capacity. He says that not many of us should strive to be teachers of God's word because teachers will be judged more strictly. Uh, I keep that in mind as I go and study and, and get ready to preach every week because our greatest gift and our greatest challenge is preaching the word accurately. So this morning, we're going to get into God's word together, and I want to ask if you need a Bible <clears throat> to follow along, please raise your hand. Joe will be glad to hand you one if you need one. There's one over here. <coughs> Excuse me. There's one over here. If you forgot yours, you would like to follow along, please raise your hand, and we'll get you one. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Kelly. Uh, let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that uh, in the next few minutes, Lord, you would use just my voice to convict, to encourage, uh, and to teach what you want to teach to each heart that is here, each mind that is here. Lord, thank you for the opportunity for us to gather, Lord. And Lord, if I've asked too little, would you make it abundant? 
in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. At the, at the end of last year, in the beginning of this year, uh, the preaching calendar usually comes out in, in all of the redemption congregations. There are 10 of them around the state of Arizona. And we get the preaching calendar and we look at it and say, oh, well, man, uh, what are we preaching next year? Uh, so at the end of last year, the beginning of this year, we realized, oh, we're preaching Revelation. <laughs> I said, okay. All right. But what an honor it is to preach from, to teach from this most misunderstood portion of Scripture. The book is unique in that there are two kinds. Of, I feel like people take two postures towards reading it, right? It's either people are completely averse to it and don't want to even read it, or they're really kind of obsessed with it. They want to read it, or they're afraid of it. Um, some have described this book as a preacher's graveyard. There's a reason, right? that some of the greatest theologians and preachers have refrained from writing any commentaries or thoughts on this book. As I began preparing over the summer and reading the theology of the book, I realized there is some stuff in the book that we should be nervous about, but not, there's not much to be afraid of. But there is a lot to be re-understood. In the last 50 years or so in, in, in church culture, sadly, when churches, it seems like when churches want to draw a crowd, when they want people to come into the doors, they will announce a series on Revelation or a midweek Bible study on the book of Daniel, at least the second half of that book, right? It's on the church marquee, come, right? People fill in the doors, right? It's itchy ear stuff. And in those sessions sometimes, the interpretation of Scripture becomes it turns sadly into speculations. And people are left feeling, man, I, I, I don't understand the world. It seems like the world's coming to an end right now. This has led to wars, the predictions of wars, antichrist figures. Maybe is this politician or is that politician? Is this country? And speculation kind of runs amok. A I'm going to date myself real quick. The year was 1999. If you remember what was happening in that year when we were all nervous that the world was coming to an end, right? It was Y2K and our computers were supposed to crash and our lights weren't going to work, our water system wasn't going to work, and everything was going to go into just chaos. The world was ending. That year, I went to more special services with preachers who were predicting different things, and I left all of those places confused. I remember one night I was sitting there watching this dude, and he was just talking about, this is going to happen. You better be ready. And I saw this, and it's coming. It's definitely going to happen. I gave my life to the Lord a lot that year. <laughs> More than any other year. I went to church on December 31st of that year, I got a fresh haircut, and I was ready because the Lord's coming. You know, you got to look good, right? <laughs> this is it. This is, I was all dressed up, ready to go, you know. But all those speculations were inaccurate. The church's witness was scarred. I was scarred because I didn't know what to believe now at church. See, that's the risk we run when we dabble in speculation. In the next 12 weeks, we will make the noble, we will seek to make the noble in the book known. And what God meant for a mystery, we will leave at that. 
Our hope is that by the end, you will be neither unhealthily obsessed with the end times, nor will you be afraid to open the book of Revelation and read it. I remember one time there, uh, I was at a church and the pastor's wife and her, and, and her friend were going for a walk. And they usually walked at like a lunchtime every day to get some exercise in. And I remember she, they were having a conversation and I overheard her, the two women talking. And one of them said, I don't ever open a book of Revelation because every time I turn a page, something grows another head. <laughs> I hope you will leave this series with a framework that is more theologically grounded and less speculative. I have titled this morning's sermon, my brothers and sisters, this morning, Church, please listen. Meet me in chapters 2 and 3. We'll kind of cover the whole thing. It's a big chunk of scripture, so I'll point out a few things as we go along. We'll try to cover as much as we can. The letters to the seven churches. Thank you, Christina, for reading. At this point in church history... It's about 50 or 60 years after Jesus' Jesus' resurrection and the good news of Jesus Christ is spreading. People are coming to faith in Jesus and church communities are sprouting up like weeds all over the Middle East. Some of these churches are doing very well and some of them are not. John, who is our writer here, is one of Jesus' disciples and he's on the island of of Patmos in the Aegean Sea when he receives a vision from God and he writes what we now call the book of Revelation. It is initially a letter to these seven churches. The portion that we're going to read and I'm going to teach from this morning is directly written specifically to these individual churches. The entire book is written to these churches and and the letter was supposed to circulate to all the churches so they could all know what each other were doing, what each other were struggling with, what each other were doing well. All over scripture, the number seven pops up. It's used a lot in the Bible, and the number seven is used to indicate completion. So the seven churches is is saying that this is the kind of the council of churches, if you will. The number seven is used to indicate a completed work or a group of work or a group of people. It echoes, pay attention now, the work of God in Genesis chapter one and two. When God created the heavens and the earth and he rested in seven days indicating completion. He brought everything that we know into existence in those seven days. These letters are to the churches in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. The structure of the letters. I'm going to walk through the structure. You throw that up there for me. Thank you. All of the seven letters have this structure. The first part of the letter, Jesus tells the church who he is. Uniquely, he introduces himself. He says, let me tell you who I am. This is a characteristic that that I hold. The second part of the letter that usually begins in these seven letters with, I know you, is usually an affirmation to the church, the things that the church is doing well. As you read along in those letters, you'll come across a but, but I have this against you. That is usually a rebuke. This is what the church is not doing well. 
And then the fourth part, as God always does, he calls the church to repentance. And then he closes out, as the French would say, faites attention, pay attention. Have ears to hear. In these letters, I must point out that the letter to Smyrna and the letter to Philadelphia have no weaknesses. These churches are doing great. The seventh church, Laodicea, has no strengths. As they would say, they ain't doing good. <laughs> so let me show you what these letters have for us in 2023. All the letters, like I said, Jesus describes who he is uniquely. Let's begin in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, to the angel or the elder, to, to, to Ephesus, Jesus says, Jesus is him who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands. By the way, lampstands there is symbolic of the churches. So when Jesus is walking through the seven lampstands, he's walking through the seven churches, amongst the completed churches. The churches are lampstands. Jesus is the light. To Smyrna, he says, he is the first and the last, the one who, who died and who came to life. To Pergamum, he says, he is the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. To Thyatira, he says, he is the one who has eyes like a flame of fire. To Sardis, he says, he is the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. To Philadelphia, he says, he is the holy one who has the key of David, who opens and no one can shut, who shuts and no one can open. To Laodicea, he says, he is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Here is the juice, church. Here's why this is important. It corresponds to what each church is struggling with. So Jesus' description of himself satisfies the need that they're wanting. The structure of the letters depicts, pay attention, the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the story of the gospel. The story of the Bible is actually told in these letters. The Bible begins with who God is. It begins with who Jesus It's classic Hebrew poetry, brothers and sisters. In chapter 1 of Revelation that we just covered last week, Revelation gives you an overview. The rest of the book unravels the details, just like chapters 1 to 3 in Genesis. Genesis 1 through 3 begins the story of the world. God shows us who he is. He is the creator. He creates Adam and Eve. They sin. He shows them repentance. And in chapter 3, we're told in beautiful poetry that Eve's son will crush the head of the serpent. So in Genesis 1 through 3, God tells us the whole story of the Bible. Just like in these letters, he goes through, he shows you who he is. Here's our sin. Here's what you do well. Here's your sin. Repent, and he calls you home. He is telling us the story. He's telling us the end of the story in the beginning of the story because he is the beginning and the end. He is the Alpha and Omega. However, these letters are not just poetic. They're also literal. These are letters that are actually read to real churches, to real people who are doing real things well and real things poorly. To each church, he says this. He says, this is who you are. Let me tell you who you are. Because I know you. 
I know you both individually and collectively. For example, he says to Ephesus, he says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know who you are. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. To Thyatira, he says this, I know your work, your love and faith and service and patience and endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. He gives them what they do well. Then he says, to some churches, he says, here's what I have against you. Can you imagine? You're standing before the face of God, and God says, this is what I have against you. Your legs will probably turn to noodles. Some of these are stinging rebukes against these churches. To Ephesus, he says, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. To Laodicea, he says this in, in, in 3.15, he says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that where you are either cold or hot? So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. The weaknesses of these churches, brothers and sisters, is their temptation to assimilate to the cities that they're in, to the context that they're in. The temptation to, to, to fear, the temptation to cave into the culture around them, right? They want, we all do want to be like those around us. That is, the, if you're following, that's the story of the Bible. When the, when the, when the Israelites were wanting a king like everybody else, we want to be like people around us. Some of these churches have given into false teachings, sexual immorality, idolatry, all kind of mess is ha are happening in these churches. God is merciful, however, just like in Genesis, when he calls Adam and Eve to repentance, just he is the same God in Revelation, he's saying. He says, here is the solution, repent. Repent and turn from your ways. He says in verse 19 of chapter 3, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Some of these churches, brothers and sisters, aren't measuring up. They're just not. Here's an interesting thing. I don't know if you've noticed about churches. They're not buildings walking around doing stuff. They're people. They're made of people. Churches, at least the ones that I've been to, people, live, people are in them, right? Living people, right, who are sinful, who are afraid, who are keen to, to, to self-preservation in a sense, right? We are a desperate wanting to be liked or loved by our peers in society. We are prone to assimilation and needing acceptance, both individually and collectively. As I walk through this, brothers and sisters, What's coming to your mind? As I read this, what's coming to your mind? Is the thought in your mind is, man, I think that's us. Some of these things I read about these churches, that's some of the churches I see. To what extent does this situation fit our churches individually in the church today? How can we capitalize on the strengths of those churches and minimize the weaknesses we see in these churches? My question to you this morning is a big one. It's a multi-layered one. 
but it's an obvious one. Is the feet on your couch question. Church, please listen. What would Jesus tell John to write about the church today? As you look upon our land from sea to shiny sea, what would Jesus say to the church in Los Angeles? What would he say to the church in Portland, in Seattle? What would Jesus say to the church in Las Vegas? What would he say to the Bible Belt churches in Memphis, in Birmingham, or Atlanta? What would he say to the politically powerful churches in Washington, D.C.? What would he say to the media-saturated and intellectually-driven churches in New York and Boston? But not only that, what would he say to the church in Rio? What would Jesus say to the church in London? What would he say to the church in Amsterdam, Cairo, Mumbai, Tokyo? What would Jesus say to the church in Beijing? Last but not least, my brothers and sisters, what would he say to the churches in our city? Tucson. What about the church that meets at 6th Avenue and 13th Street? The church that meets at Safford School. What would Jesus say today, my brothers and sisters, to the American church, of which you and I are a part of? I believe he will write a similar letter. A letter that may go something like this. Bear with me. To the elders of the church in the United States, the words of Jesus, the great and wonderful counselor, the king of kings, the bread of life, the Son of God, and our first love. I know you, I know your works, and your warmth. You exist in a land founded on great ideals and ideas. You have endured. You have been a pillar in spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth with all the missionaries you sent. You have educated many. You've been the key to translate the scriptures for many in their own languages. And out of you, many have been called to the rest of the world. You have sacrificed sons and daughters on the fields of missions. Out of you, America, have come great churches, theologians, pastors, preachers, priest. But then I believe he would say this to us. But I have this against you. You were double-minded on the issue of slavery for too long. You have been indifferent to the plight of the poor. You've embraced the spirit of consumerism and materialism, and your love for money is strong. Your definition of success 
is very different than mine. You have allowed division to enter into my house. You allowed business strategy to dictate and lead you. You lost the desire and the love for prayer. Your leaders have become intoxicated by their platform and prestige and relative celebrity. You would rather follow CEOs than shepherds. You have lost sight of the basics. Love God. Love your neighbor. Read your word. Pray and seek after righteousness. Repent. Repent. Repent of your indifference to the poor. Repent of your racism. Repent of your love for money. Repent of your love for false gods and idolatry. Repent of your celebrity worship. You live like orphans when you have a loving father. He who has ears, let him hear. We have lost our way. We have lost our way. When the founder of an organization or a company dies and phases out, the company often loses vision. It loses its way. When the founder of something who has the fire and the vision walks away or, like I said, dies, it loses its vision. It turns into something that the founder never intended. You don't believe me, read the history of Harvard University. It was established to train and teach clergy. You had to sign a statement of faith to go to that school. Years later, it is not what that is now. If you don't believe me, read the story of the YMCA, the Young Men's Christian Association. Now it's just called the Y. And I want to ask them why. <laughs> Our father is not dead. It's what I'm trying to tell you. We cannot lose our way. Our father, the, 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 the author and founder of our faith is not dead. He's alive. He rose from the grave. So why do we pretend like our father is dead and we have lost our way? Somebody's hearing me this morning. Sisters and brothers, our, our land needs the church more than ever. Church, please listen. Let me say this to you this morning, my brothers and sisters. When you hear this, before you go off and say, you know what, we've got to do better in the church. Well, I'm going to put some perfume on my church. I'm going to put some cologne on. I'm going to give the church a first metaphorical haircut and make it look good from the outside. I want to inform you that the church is always in need of correction. 
The church is always in need of affirmation. The church is always in need of repentance. The church is always in need of motivation. The church is always in need of the fire of Christ. We are just the lampstand. We are not the light. Jesus is the light. In his great book, Reverse Thunder, Eugene Peterson, who passed away uh, a little while ago, he was a pastor of Christ the King Presbyterian Church, says this about the church, and it's so beautiful, and I'll paraphrase this. He says this, the churches of Revelation show us that churches are not Victorian parlors where everything is always cleaned and picked up, ready for guests to come in. The church, they are messy family rooms. Things are out of order. The church is not a showroom. They are living rooms. And if the people living in them are sinners, there will be clothes scattered all around. There will be spills on the carpets, fingerprints on the walls. However, Jesus insists on calling sinners and not the righteous to repentance. Churches will remain that way in a sense. In Revelation, he says, John sees churches as lampstands, as places and locations where the light of Christ is shown. They are not in themselves the light. There is nothing, he says, particularly glamorous about churches. Nor, on the other hand, is there anything particularly shameful about churches. Churches simply are. So I close this morning I want to remind you of the purpose of church, the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church, my brothers and sisters, is to transform people. It's to transform people through discipleship. It's to transform people who transform families, who transform communities, who transform cities, who reach the ends of the earth with the good news of Jesus Christ. I want to remind you this morning of the last words of each of these letters that we're looking at, and you can read them this evening before you go to bed. The last words of each of these letters are warnings and encouragements to us. These these words are prophetic words that are not just to those churches, but to us today. These letters were written not directly to us, but they are for us. It's a warning. Every one of these letters ends in this refrain. He who has ears, let him hear. It's a warning, my brothers and sisters, against assimilation. It's a warning against laziness. It's a warning against the sleepy, comfortable Christianity that we've come to just to, to be. It's a warning against false teachers and false teaching. When you read Revelation, remind yourself, my brothers and sisters, that you're not on a prediction committee. You're on the welcoming committee. You're, not on, you're on the watch and pray committee. You're on the witness and discipleship committee. You're on the love your neighbor committee. And those committees meet in places where sinners are because we're all sinners saved by the grace of God. We're always in need of hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. My brothers and sisters, let him who has ears, let him hear. Please listen. The church needs affirmation. It also needs rebuke. 
The last words of all of these seven letters to these seven churches is he who has ears, let him hear. This phrase is it's a prophetic warning for us, brothers and sisters, to open our minds and our hearts to kingdom truths, not to itchy ear predictions and speculations. It's a strong call to God's people to open our ears to understanding. God's truths are clear and available to all of us. It's a call to stay vigilant. It's a call to listen and to repent. Church, please listen. Bow your heads. Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that your words will not go void. They will find their seat in the hearts of many. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the ability and the time we have to gather and hear your word and worship together. Lord, the church is not just for saints, it's also for sinners. It is the bride of Christ that will never be perfect until Christ returns. Lord, may we make the way, may we prepare and be ready to welcome Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for your grace and peace that surpasses all understanding. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.